Heavenly Father, we come before you now as we give of our tithes and offerings, asking that you would take this portion that we give back to you of what you've already given to us, and you would see fit to use it in the life of our church, use it in ways that cause your gospel to go forward, the good news to spread to people who have yet to hear, who have yet to believe, that the grace of the Lord Jesus the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would be known to an increasing number of people, both in our community and around the world. Lord, we ask that you make use of this money, uh, Lord, and that you stir our hearts towards joyfulness as we give towards the, the kingdom and the work that you're accomplishing here in our community and around the world. We ask now that as we come to your word, God, that you would give us wisdom to divide it rightly, discernment to understand it truly, and humility to submit to it and what it asks of us. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You can be seated. Well, it's good to be with you this morning, Baylife. How are we? Doing good? I realize that for some of you, it was all you could do to drag yourself out of bed to be here. Specifically, those of you who volunteered at Kitapalooza this past week. There's a few of you here. Yeah. If you heard what Corey mentioned earlier and you're still a little bit confused as to what Kitapalooza is, it's this once a year sort of VBS on steroids that we have here at our church. It's five days where we open up our church to the kids here at our church, but also in our community. The gospel is presented clearly every single day. Uh, and the hope is that the Spirit will see fit to use this time to stir up faith in the hearts of some of the kids here in our church and in the community in which we find ourselves. And as Corey mentioned, the response has been tremendous this year. We had 800 kids signed up, 700 showing up daily. On the last day, we invited their parents, and we had about 1,000 people on campus uh, and as Corey said as well, there was about 40 kids who prayed to receive Christ. And so the Spirit has seen fit to use this. Yeah, we can clap for that. That's worth celebrating. Uh, the Spirit has seen fit to use this uh, to stir up faith in the hearts of many people here at our church. And so it's worth celebrating. And so if you gave of your time and your energies this week towards Kitapalooza, thank you so much. Uh, and if you just simply committed to praying for Kitapalooza, thank you. Uh, let me remind you once again that we do still have missions teams out. Our India team got back yesterday. Our New York team left yesterday. And so I just want to encourage you to continue to pray for fruit as a result of Kitapalooza, but also be praying for those teams as they carry the gospel to the ends of the earth and to other portions in our nation. And speaking of missions, we're in the midst of a series called On the Road where we've been walking through the book of Acts together. We've been looking at the foundations of the church, uh, the sort of DNA that is really implanted in the Christian church from the very beginning. And what we see throughout the book of Acts is that the Christian church has been missional from the very start. There's always been this impetus to take the gospel and to carry it to the ends of the earth, to go to every tribe and every tongue and every nation, carrying the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. You'll remember last week, Shane, our high school pastor, walked us through the first half of chapter 18 of the book of Acts, which talks about the Apostle Paul and his time spent in the city of Corinth. He enters into the city, he goes to the synagogues, he begins to preach and to teach. 
as is his custom, and as a result of his ministry, many people come to faith. But as is common in Paul's ministry, no shortage of people are upset by what he's saying. And eventually he's dragged before what's called the tribunal, which is part of the legal system of Corinth before a man named Gaius. The Jewish leaders drag Paul before this man in the hopes that they can have Paul prosecuted for crimes against the state. And yet Gaius says, I want nothing to do with your conflict. You guys can sort it out yourself. This is a debate about words, about words, about words that I have no interest in. And the text for last week ends with what seems to be the people who dragged Paul before the tribunal being assaulted by a mob and Gaius, the chief of justice, if you will, just sort of turning a blind eye and paying no attention to mob justice as it's carried out in the city of Corinth. And then we come to our text for the morning. You know, in the college and career ministry, which I pastor, we have this custom that we've sort of developed over the years where when we read from scripture together, we stand as a sign of reverence. And I realize that for some of us, this is a little bit uncomfortable. It feels a little bit old-fashioned. It feels a little out of date. It feels maybe like the church that you're running away from because you had such a terrible experience there. But I, I just want to challenge you with this, that there are all sorts of things in our service that we sort of accept uncritically and we do without really thinking. Like, we stand for worship. And more often than not, Corey or Brad or whoever's leading doesn't even have to tell you to stand. We just all sort of naturally stand. And if, if asked as to why we do something like that, we might say, well, we're coming before the Lord and we want to be reverent. But consider that worship is very often man's word about God, back to him, whereas scripture is God's word about himself to us. How much more then ought we to give due reverence to hearing the voice of our Lord as he speaks through Holy Scripture? And so with that in mind, I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word as I read our text for the morning this is Acts chapter 18, verse 18 through 24, 28, I'm sorry, hear the word of the Lord. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Kencre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. He came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail for Ephesus. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up greeted and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed, and he went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples." Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he taught and spoke accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to preach boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. You can be seated. You know, I wonder if in our familiarity with having the Bible in its present form, if we don't tend to miss things from time to time. What I mean by that is that you have the books of Holy Scripture bound together with a nice faux leather cover or some sort of a plastic cardboard cover. You've got an index, you've got a table of contents, you've got maps, which is more than we can say for like the first 500 years of Christian history. 
because maps were expensive. But more than that, you've got chapters and verses, which are profoundly helpful when you're trying to find your way around a passage or a chunk of scripture. And yet the tendency is to think that when the chapter ends, the thought ends. The tendency is to think that when the verses end or when we maybe get to a round number, that that's the end of the idea. And sometimes we miss the fullness of the sweep of what is going on in the Bible because we think that we can stop at the end of a chapter. When Luke wrote the book of Acts, there were no chapters, there were no verses, there was no punctuation, and it was in all capital letters because that was how ancient Greek worked. So if you had received this in an email, it would have looked like Luke was screaming at you over email. He's got something important to say. And the reason I say that is because our passage begins in verse 18 by saying, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. But the after this is referring to what has just taken place in verses 15 through 17. That Paul's case has been dismissed and Gaius drives them from the tribunal. But then this crowd that had seized Paul then seizes Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beats him in front of the tribunal. But Gaio pays no attention to any of this. Okay, so Paul has been in this city of Corinth preaching the gospel. He's received this vision from Christ that he will be protected and preserved, that nobody's going to hurt him. And that promise seems to be in jeopardy for this small moment when he's dragged before the tribunal, but the the word of Christ stands true and nobody hurts Paul. But then the people that tried to get Paul in trouble are just assaulted by a mob in front of the judges of Corinth. And the judges just go, hmm, anyways, and just walk off. Okay, even though Paul gets off scot-free, if I'm in that city and I just experienced that over the last five or six hours, I'm dipping out. I'm not staying any longer. I have no interest in being here because what I've just witnessed tells me that this is not a city that's interested in justice or fairness. It's prone to a mob mentality. I may have gotten off scot-free for, for this one experience, but who's to say that they're not going to turn on me next and he's going to turn a blind eye just like he did with this previous case of injustice. It does not seem like the sort of place that you want to continue to hang out in. And yet, Paul stays many days longer after this whole experience. When I was in high school, this movie came out that gripped me and my friends really tightly because it was everything that like a 15 or 16-year-old high school guy dripping with testosterone wanted. It was this movie, 300, that you might be familiar with, where it sort of dramatically and imaginatively depicts this comic book, which very imaginatively depicts this event in history where these 300 Spartans hold off this horde of Persian soldiers for an unbelievable period of time. And so me and my friends were just talking about this movie constantly for like the first month or so that it was out. We went to see it a a bazillion times. Hollywood made a ton of money off of us. Uh, We were quoting it constantly in the hallway and in class. And I started to think about the fact that my, my grandma, my yaya, as I call her, is the daughter of Greek immigrants. And I started to think, wouldn't it be cool if those Greek immigrants could be traced back to the Spartans? Wouldn't that be impressive? And so I went to my yaya when I was visiting my grandparents one weekend, and very uh, trepidatiously, I asked her, hey, so where are we from in Greece, generally speaking? And much to my dismay, I'm the descendant of a bunch of nerds from Athens and poor farmers on the edge of Turkey. And so I didn't have anything cool to share with my friends, and so I just didn't even mention it 
the next week because I have no relationship to the 300 Spartans that were so wonderfully depicted in that movie. But the inclination that sort of existed in high school Travis to be able to trace myself back to something of which I'm proud is something that is probably indicative of the wider human experience. We all want to be able to trace our roots back to people and events of which we can take pride in or in which we can take pride. This is why something like Ancestry.com continues to pull in millions of dollars because people are just hoping that they're related to somebody cool and interesting and profound. Uh, this is why you can talk to somebody whose entire family for the last seven generations has lived in the United States and they'll still brag to you about how they're 165th Scottish, even though they've never been to the nation of Scotland. Because we want to say that we've come from somewhere interesting, exciting, noble, worthy of respect. And I guess the reason I say this is because I just want to draw your attention, if you're a Christian in this room, to the fact that the stock of which you are drawn is first and foremost the man Christ Jesus, but second, it's people like Paul who stay in the city in the midst of unbelievable chaos and anarchy and breakdown of order because whatever he stands to lose in this city is nothing compared to what is to be gained if these people can hear the gospel and believe by faith in the power of the spirit what God has accomplished through the son. It's people like Polycarp and Ignatius further on in church history who face the lions with boldness because they know that Christ has been raised and nothing done to their earthly body can stand in comparison to the resurrection of the dead that is promised to us in Christ Jesus. It's people like Luther who can stand before the diet of worms and say, my conscience is held captive to the word of God. That is the stock from which we come as Christians and yet... The faithfulness that we see in the lives of these men all the way back to scripture in the life of Paul is not ultimately meant to cause you or I to marvel at these men or to marvel at Paul specifically. It is meant to cause you and I to marvel at the power of the gospel of Jesus to carry and sustain people through the darkest and most hopeless of times. Paul stays in the city many days after all hell breaks loose. But Paul doesn't stay in the city for forever. He, along with Priscilla and Aquila, who are a husband and wife duo that he's met in Corinth, board a ship, and they go to Ephesus, and Paul leaves them there and continues on in his missionary work towards Antioch. But it's in this city that Priscilla and Aquila encounter a man named Apollos. And Luke gives us an incredible amount of details about Apollos. He tells us that he was a Jew, a native of Alexandria, who had come to Ephesus. He's eloquent. He's competent. He's been instructed in the way of the Lord. He's fervent in spirit. He speaks and teaches accurately the things concerning Jesus, although he knows only the baptism of John. Let's make no mistake here. Apollos might be a little bit off base on some stuff, but he is no heretic. He is... Generally speaking, getting it right. He is held up as a paragon to be admired. Like Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It seems as though Luke wants us to see Apollos and imitate Apollos as Apollos imitates Christ. But every detail that we're given about him is significant. Take, for example, the fact that he is a Jew from Alexandria. The ancient world, Alexandria, is one of the intellectual hubs of the Roman Empire. It's the second largest city. 
It's the place where the philosophers philosophize, where the culture makers culture make, where the thinkers think. It's home to the largest library in the ancient world, the Library of Alexandria, which was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Uh, It was burned down in some year that I can't remember because I forgot to look it up before the sermon. (laughs) But it is a significant place of cultural discussion and conversation. It's the place where the Old Testament is translated into the Greek Septuagint. Apollos comes from a city of smart, smart, smart people. And Luke goes on to tell us that Apollos himself is thoroughly Alexandrian. He's eloquent, he's competent, he's been instructed in the way of the Lord. Make no mistake, this man is an intellectual. And his intellectualism is not portrayed as being a bad thing, but something that is commendable. Here's why this is important. Because many of us have swallowed a version of Christianity which is intellectually shallow, it's uncritical, it doesn't think, it doesn't wrestle with issues of theology, nor does it care to be bothered by them. But this is a Christianity that has nothing to do with the Bible. It is not the faith of C.S. Lewis or Thomas Aquinas or John Calvin or St. Augustine or Paul or Apollos or Jesus Christ who is the very wisdom of God incarnate. And it manifests itself across the spectrum of so many evangelical American churches which are more driven by a desire to be entertained and be given five steps to a better marriage rather than to be called to contemplate the deep things of God. And I just want to tell you the great tragedy of this. As somebody who's in their 20s, who's had numerous friends walk away from the faith, who's pastoring college students, who's paying attention to the trends, that this trend towards anti-intellectual, atheological, non-thinking Christianity is reaping a bitter harvest among people my age. There was a study just recently put out the top six reasons why 20-somethings leave the church And right smack dab in the middle was that they experienced something that was shallow and thoughtless. But that is not who we are as Christians. We are a people who think about the deep things of God. Our Savior is the very wisdom of God incarnate, in whom all treasures of wisdom are hidden. Apollos is a thoughtful man, and we must be thoughtful people. Right now, some of you who are theology nerds are sort of fist bumping and saying, yeah, you get them. But Apollos is not just a brain on a stick. Apollos is not just an intellectual at the expense of his affections and his heart. Because you'll notice that the text goes on to say that not only is he eloquent and competent, but he is also fervent in spirit, speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. You know, Apollos is not simply wise. He's not simply intelligent. He is a man of passion. His faith is not simply dispassionate, but there is a fire in his bones when he speaks about the things of God. And that ought to be true of each and every one of us because you and I, if we are Christians in this room, are dealing in holy mysteries of eternal significance on a weekly basis. The minute that you come to the table of the Lord together with the rest of the people in this room, you are approaching the God of heaven and earth, communing with Christ through his work on the cross by the power of the Spirit. That is profound. It is significant. It should set your heart on fire. When we pray here, 
together for these missions teams sent out as Christ was sent out and has sent us out to the ends of the earth to carry the gospel to those who have not yet heard. We are coming before the God of heaven and earth through the blood of the Son. That is not insignificant. And if it does not set your heart ablaze, then you have not rightly thought about what it is that we do as Christians. There should be a fire in your heart. There ought to be fervency for the things of God, and such a fervency is present in Apollos. And yet, for all of the good, he's still lacking. I don't think Luke presents Apollos as a heretic. I don't think Luke presents Apollos as somebody who is shatteringly off base, but he's missing a few things. He knows only the baptism of John, and sometimes that's even more dangerous. Somebody who's thoughtful and who's passionate and who's only a little bit off base. I wonder how many cults have been started by such people. So, Priscilla and Aquila, this husband and wife duo who are probably a little bit older than him, a little further along in the faith than him, hear him speaking boldly in the synagogue. And they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. What's so astounding here is that in the book of Acts, at the very foundations of the church, we see this impetus towards mission, that people like Paul, Priscilla, Aquila, Peter, James, John, they're all going to the nations, but we also see the seeds of discipleship present at the very foundation of the church. Priscilla and Aquila take this young man aside who's earnest, who's almost got it, but is just a little bit off base. And what's astounding in this relationship is the posture that we see, uh, both in Apollos' heart and in this husband and wife's heart. For Priscilla and Aquila, they hear him speaking and they choose to take him aside. The NIV actually says they took him into their home, and we'll get to that in a second. But just consider, uh, as I considered this week in my own heart, when I hear somebody saying something that's wrong or off base or misguided, my immediate temptation is to loudly and forcefully denounce them and shout them down, maybe in all caps on a Facebook post. This is why I deleted my Facebook, because there's too much sin in my heart to have that sort of power at my fingertips. I can think of when I was in middle school, and I had grown up in a private Christian school until the sixth grade. So I didn't know anybody who wasn't a Christian, or at least claimed to be a Christian, because everybody in a private school up until sixth grade thinks that they're a Christian. And when I switched to public school, and had a class with somebody who was a Wiccan, my first inclination when they started talking about what they believed was to shout them down. And my witness was pretty much shot for my technology class in the seventh grade because I just wanted to stomp it out because I knew it was wrong and I didn't want other people to hear it. And yet this is not how Priscilla and Aquila handle this. They're gracious. They hear his heart, they hear his fervency, they take him aside out of the public eye and they have this conversation with him, probably many conversations with him. F.F. Bruce, the great New Testament scholar, says how much better it is to give such private help to a preacher whose ministry is defective than to correct or denounce him publicly. We see in this something of the posture of true discipleship It's not about slamming people with their shortcomings, but graciously leading them towards a deeper understanding of the gospel. And Apollos, 
who's probably garnered no shortage of followers, also responds in an uncommon way, a way that I just, as I consider my own heart, I probably wouldn't respond like. The tendency when I'm corrected about things that I'm passionate about is to put up my fists, stiffen my back, and dig in my heels. Because I'm excited about this, I've thought about this, I know I'm right because I'm never wrong about anything. But yet, every indication in the text is that Apollos heeds their advice. He enters into their home. He has the conversation. In humility, he receives correction. And that temptation, if I can just say this to the side, especially for people my age, the temptation is that nobody who's gone before us has anything to teach us. That's so wrong. That's so misguided. That's so foolish. There's such wisdom from those who've gone before us, both those who are living and those who even in death still speak. But what we see here in this discipleship relationship is a picture of people who speak gently and those who listen humbly, and we could do with an awful lot more of that in the Church of Christ. But I want to call your attention again to the way that the NIV renders this passage, that they hear him speaking in the synagogue, and they invite him into their home to have this conversation. You know, as we talk about discipleship, the temptation is to relegate our work of discipling, and if you're one of the people who signed up to disciple here at the church, thank you. But the temptation that I find even in myself is to relegate discipleship towards like a 45-minute conversation over a cup of coffee where we can keep people at a distance and we can present our best face. But to invite somebody into your home is to bridge that gap, is to remove that distance. It is to invite somebody into the midst of your life rather than the safe space of the neutral ground of Starbucks. And yet this, I think, is the radical discipleship towards which we're called as the people of God. Not just to invite people into a 30-minute window, but to invite them into our lives and say, see what it looks like for me as a husband, as a father, as a son, to follow Christ in the day-to-day. You know, the Lord began to sort of impress this in my heart a couple of years ago. Just thinking about his own hospitality towards us and how his people ought to be hospitable and what discipleship looks like in the scriptures, and on a whim, I sort of just invited a handful of guys from the college and career ministry to start coming to my apartment on Wednesdays, just to have a conversation. Let's read a book together, let's wrestle with scripture together, uh, let's pray together, let's encourage one another. Uh, and I sort of sweetened the pot, but made it infinitely more stressful on myself by promising that I would cook for them every week. Like, if you show up, I'll make dinner. I spent hours on Pinterest trying to find things that I could make with any degree of accuracy. And so it came down to about three or four things that I would just rotate. So we ate a lot of casserole. And, and I'll be honest with you, the first few weeks of that were uncomfortable. There was tension there. Because I've now given up my whole evening. This wasn't 45 minutes. This was hours of us being together in conversation and in prayer. And I've invited people now into what I perceive to be my sanctuary and my safe space, which is my crummy little apartment in Seminole Heights. And this space, which I would use to retreat from people, has now been used as a place of gathering people together around the things of God. But let me be clear. Once the initial shock wore off over the course of that year, God did incredible things 
in the hearts of each and every one of us as we began to understand what it meant to follow the way of Christ more fully. Discipleship and hospitality are not divorced from one another. It is not enough to give people your time. You must invite them into your lives. Is it any wonder then that the Apostle Paul in Thessalonians says that you were so dear to us that we shared not only the gospel with you, but our lives as well? Is it any wonder that this is how Jesus produced disciples? He didn't say, come see me at the Sermon on the Mount and then we'll talk in a couple months. He lived with these men. He invited them into his own life so that they could hear the kingdom of God preached in his word and they could see the kingdom of God lived out over campfires and on dusty roads in the Middle East. And is this not what salvation is? That the triune God invites us to behold his inner life so that we might see what true love and true joy and true happiness looks like. And discipleship is not simply time, but it is an invitation into the inner workings of our lives. And I realize that some of you are hearing this right now and you're a little bit concerned because this sounds like it's a lot more than you bargained for. You know that there's this call to make disciples, but, but this sounds like a lot. Let me just tell you, I'm, I'm not a man of particular means. My apartment is small. It almost definitely has termites in it. It's, I'm not a good cook. There were at least a couple runs to Papa John's because I had botched whatever I was making and we weren't going to be able to handle it. And yet, discipleship and hospitality, these are not commandments simply for those of means, but everybody who is marked by the name of Jesus. I mean, I thank God that here at Baylife we've begun to take this more seriously through the work of Cindy Perkins, through the app that we've produced through the opportunity for those who are a little bit further along as Priscilla and Aquila are to meet with those who are a little bit further behind and to have these discussions. Can I encourage you? Discipleship is not an option. It is a calling. It is a commandment. It is the vocation of a Christian. And the church desperately, desperately needs it. I can just speak, if I can just speak for myself and the friends that I have Older generation, we need you. We are in the midst of loss and pain and suffering that many of us are experiencing for the first time in our lives and how desperately we need to hear faithful saints who have walked through it and seen the faithfulness of God and have them encourage us so that we can bear this burden ourselves through grace. People in my generation, there are younger Christians who are coming up now in a world that we understand a little bit better than our parents, and they need to understand what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ and faithful to the gospel in the midst of complexity. We need discipleship rooted deeply in the heart of this church and the church at large. But pay attention to where the text goes. After Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos begin to have these conversations. Verse 27, there came a day when Apollos wished to cross to Achaia. The brothers, which we're to assume are Priscilla and Aquila and those with them, encouraged him, wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. There is this great echo of discipleship and sending that resonates throughout the whole of the New Testament. The Father sends the Son. The Son takes for himself disciples. He invites them into his life. He trains them up in the kingdom of God and the gospel. 
But then he says, go, and you make disciples now. And then we see the 12 in the book of Acts, spreading across the world, gathering for themselves those who they can teach about the way of Jesus and instruct them more fully. And then they're sent out, people like Priscilla and Aquila. And then we see people like Priscilla and Aquila heed the echo of the call of Jesus that's resonated through the apostles. And they take Apollos. And they train him up in the way of God more fully. And then they send him and they say, you go. And you make disciples. And so he goes to Achaia. And he helps greatly those who by grace have believed. Bailiff, my prayer is that the echo of the voice of our Lord to make disciples would resound in this community loudly. That we would take seriously call to hospitality and discipleship. Our God is a hospitable God, and he has given us marching orders, not suggestions. So I pray that we would be a people who make disciples in the power of the Holy Spirit by the grace of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness towards us. Lord, we ask now that by the Spirit, as we have heard your word, that you would bind it to our hearts that it would stir us up towards good deeds, towards love for one another. Oh, give us grace. We so desperately need it. Teach us what it means to follow you. Point our hearts towards Christ. Turn our eyes towards him and what he's done. And God, I pray that you would make us a people who are deeply concerned with discipleship and hospitality. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.